it's important to have an open mind and open heart and to show them by example those who have served their time and done the work shouldn't be judged by the stigma of their past. They deserve to have a chance at life. In many ways, it's not their second chance. It's their first chance. Because if you hear the circumstances under which they grew up, you realize that the odds were against them from the get-go. Welcome, Getting There fans. I'm your host, Alejandro Garcia Maya. 85% of incarcerated individuals end up back in prison within a few years. But not one incarcerated individual from the Last Mile program has ended up back in prison. How is that possible? On today's show, we have Beverly Parenti, the executive director and co-founder of The Last Mile an organization that prepares incarcerated individuals for successful reentry through business and technology training. In this episode, Beverly and I go over the United States prison system and she answers a number of questions such as, why are recidivism rates so high? Recidivism is when an incarcerated individual reoffends and finds themselves back in jail. How does the first in prison technology program in the United States work? What is not working? What are the biggest obstacles? What does the future hold? Join us in our conversation. Let's do this. Where, where did you grow up? I was born in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. We moved to Queens. And then when I was in third grade, we moved to Long Island, to the North Shore of Long Island. I am a first-generation American. Uh, my parents came to the United States to escape the Holocaust. Uh, my father arrived when he was 18. My mother was a little younger. They met, actually, in New York. Is there a lesson you hold dear from your parents or closest mentors? Honestly, my parents taught me that hard work is what you need to do to be successful and to overcome the odds. They also taught me early on to believe in second chances because mm. they themselves are living proof that if you do the work and you live right, that anything is possible. What did you study? I, I um, achieved a Bachelor of Science in Education and then did advanced studies in special education. And when I graduated from uh, school, I was very, very young. And I decided that I would take a gap year. And I traveled around the world by myself, which was bold. Um, and I <laughs> came back to New York a year later. And I decided that I wanted to do some good in the world. After having a chance to really understand who I was in a broader perspective of the world rather than New York. Mm. And so... I applied for a job that was completely, I was sure this is my dream job. This is what I'm going to do. And it was at the Center for War and Peace Studies in this cool brownstone in like Gramercy Park area in New York. And I thought I nailed it. You know, I thought, wow, this is it. And they called me and said, I'm sorry, but we're not going to hire you 
because your typing skills were too slow. Hmm. And I said, really? You're not going to hire me for typing? (laughs) (laughs) Like that just really left an impression on me. And I said, I cannot let others determine my future. I just can't let others determine my future. So what did I do? I became an entrepreneur, start my own companies. I'm not going to depend on others to judge me Hmm. by something that in my mind was so irrelevant to the job. Before we learn more about Last Mile, we usually share a couple problems and it's more for the fans and um, feel free to, uh, to join me in answering any one of these questions. Uh, here we go. Based on a special report by U.S. Department of Justice, what percent of state prisoners were arrested at least once during this nine years following their release? We have A, 41%, B, 83%, C, 27%, D, 65%. Which one, Beverly? Well, you know, astonishing that it's 83%. But remember, it's once during nine years following release. And it doesn't really state why. And I have to say that there have been a lot of arrests for parole violations, but not for crimes. So if you forget to do something, if you forget to report, or if there is some instance that the parole officer believes that you were truant, someone could be rearrested. And you get sent right back to a whole nother world. Over how many people who are locked up have not been convicted or sentenced? A, 240,000, B, 480,000, C, 130,000, D, 540,000. These are people who are locked up that have not been convicted or sentenced. What, what, uh, what do you think? Well, it's over half a million people. So 540, 540,000 would be the right answer. And they're just kind of in limbo. Which is, it's, it's mind-blowing to, to see this type of figure. So this is according to a public policy 2019 mass incarceration report. Many of these individuals are detained in local jails because they cannot afford to pay bail. And bail is the amount set to secure their release. And the median bail amount for felonies is $10,000. And that represents eight months of income for a typical person that's detained and that are unable to pay bail. So I would love to learn more about the last mile. And before we do that, I want to ask what is, because I'm sure we're going to hear this word a couple times, what is recidivism? And I don't even know if I even said that right. My Spanish comes out every time I try and say this word. (laughs) Well, you're not alone. A lot of people struggle with not only saying the word, but with the word itself. Uh, Recidivism is the rate in which people return to prison after release. And it varies over time. And there are, you know, there's no standard, really. Some refer to recidivism in a year. Some say five years. Some say three years. I believe there's a a Bureau of Justice statistic that finds that inmates released from state prison 
have a five-year recidivism rate of 76.6%. And then the same study calculated comparable federal prisoners released having a 44.7 rearrest rate after five years. So the numbers are all over the map. So in terms of the numbers, what do we know? Well, what we know very clearly is that education and career training lowers the recidivism rate significantly. Um, in California, when, when the last mile first began, and what created the impetus for me to become involved in the last mile, is when I learned in 2000, I believe it was 2010, 2009, 2010, that the recidivism rate in California was about 67%. And that was the rate in which those who returned to society went back to prison within three years. The other thing that just drove me crazy is that the amount of spending to keep a person incarcerated was over $60,000. Now, today it's probably it's over it's about 70,000. But over $60,000 to keep someone incarcerated, 67% recidivism rate. That's a very bad investment in our citizens. And to top it off if that wasn't enough, I found out at the time we were spending five times more on incarceration than we were for higher education. <laughs> but as, a, as in our state, as a society, we, were, we weren't investing enough in education because the funds were being used to keep people locked up. So my idea at the time for the last mile, my, I won't say my idea, but my motivation, it's like if I could reduce recidivism over time by just 5%, we could save millions of dollars, millions of taxpayer dollars. And if we could take those dollars and put them into education for our youth, then we could break the generational cycle of incarceration. At least we would give them a chance to be successful. Because I've got to say, that so many of the men, women, and youth that we meet when we go inside the facilities, whether they are in our classrooms or not, many of them have never even given, been given a first chance, let alone a second chance. So if we could provide funding for education and bring the level up in our underserved communities and break that generational cycle of incarceration, to me, the last mile was that that was just the best reason I could come up with until I went inside and, and met the men at San Quentin. Wow. So does that make sense? Absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Reduce I recidivism, spend more on education, you know, give our people a chance, a first chance. Can you give a little bit of background on, on the incarceration system in the U.S. and what is the difference between private and public and how do they actually function? So, I, you know, I'm not an expert on private and public prisons per se, but I will um, give you this information that, you know, in California, we have about 132,000 people incarcerated in our prisons. 132,000. 132, so we have, um, in the U.S., we have 5% of the world's population 
and 25% of the world's incarcerated population. That's and right. 10% of that happens to be in California. So we are, our prisons have been overcrowded. And in fact, at one point, we had to outsource those who were incarcerated to other states and in fact, place them in private prisons just because of lack of space in our own facilities. In terms of incentives for a private prison, one that's run by a corporation or one that's a bureau, part federal, what are their incentives and, and in terms of incarceration? And then do they have incentives for prisoners integrating back into society? So that's a big question. I have to say, in general, the trend is definitely shifting towards rehabilitation. So the the organization in California, or the California Department of Corrections, CDC, well, today it's CDCR. They've added that R because it truly does try to focus on rehabilitation. And that's and so a big that that's a big step forward just just to huge. include that acknowledge it I guess. And, and I see it in California. I see it in all the states in which we have programs. The, the last mile um you know we're a nonprofit based in San Francisco and we were the first program in the United States to provide in-prison software engineering training with the goal of preparing students for employment as front-end developers and web designers when they come home. We started as a proof of concept in San Quentin, and today we have facilities in five states. We have 17 classrooms, and we have equally represented classrooms for men and women, and we have three programs in youth facilities. Wow. That's incredible. Well, first off, congratulations for that success and for continuing to grow the program. How do you go about preparing individuals for success? Huh. Well, through our curriculum that has evolved over time, that we provide hard skills, learning things like HTML, CMS, CSS. We provide educational skills in HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and other web technologies. So it's a two-track program. Each track is six months. And by the end of the second track, the students will be able to create websites, mobile apps, web apps. Um, in the second track, they learn Node, JS, React, and some more advanced JavaScript languages. But we also believe that soft skills are vitally important because you, you might know how to develop an app or you might know how to work, do your code, but how do you work with a team? Hmm. How do you integrate what you do with the work of others? The last mile started as an entrepreneurship program at San Quentin. For two years, my husband and co-founder Chris Redlitz and I taught the program ourselves by going inside two nights a week and teaching how to write a business plan, how to tap into your passion and create a business, how to name it, what's your tagline, what's your logo look like, how would you fund it, what's your technology component, what's your social cause, and 
how do you present this to a group of potential investors, just as you would at a demo day anywhere in the world? And this program ran for six months. Uh, We started with a cohort of six. Our first demo day was in 2012. Lots of videos about it on our site, thelastmile.org. And it was just extraordinarily successful. So we believe that public speaking, presentation skills, and really having an understanding of business is vitally important. The course in total is a blend of soft and hard skills. And to that end, uh, just recently, I co-taught a class with professor at Stanford University in the D School, Tina Seelig, who is amazing. And it was called Unlocking Innovation in Prison. We had a group of 16 students from Stanford, advanced students. So they were in advanced learning. They had already graduated, graduate mm-hmm. program. And 16 students from our cohort at San Quentin. They broke up into teams of four. So two, two Stanford students and two students from San Quentin on each team. They had team projects. They learned all of the principles of design thinking over a period of time with lectures and outside lectures that were on a weekly basis through Google Hangouts. And then they had team meetings once a week through Zoom and Google Hangouts in which one of our credentialed staff was present and the teams were together to kind of figure out what their project was going to be and iterate on it. And it was just an amazing experience. Um, And it ended with a presentation day where all the projects uh, were presented actually at San Quentin. Teams got together in person a few times. Stanford students kind of across the board said it was the most transformational class they had during their educational experience. Wow. And so those are the types of, I, I use that as an example. Those are the types of things that we do. Have it bringing in guest lecturers, entrepreneurs, authors, people from big corps and, you know, people from startup companies. You should definitely come inside or even do a remote uh, instruction. I love that. Lecture. Actually, yeah. I would love that. That's that's incredible. If I were an in, inmate in St. Quentin, how does that experience look from their end? How do they get to know about your program? Well, they all say um, news travels very quickly <laughs> inside correctional <laughs> facilities, good or bad. Um, initially, we recruited based on recommendations from the administration and other people we knew who were volunteers inside. But we have very, very strict requirements to get into the program. Number one is we look at other programs that they have been involved in while they are incarcerated. Uh, We look at their time to gate and we recruit about 75% of the class is three years to gate or less. The other 25% can be longer term or lifers because we believe everybody needs purpose. Mm. (laughs) Laws change. And we've, in our first cohort, we had, I think, five lifers and four of whom are home. Wow. So that was a surprise. We require that they do not have behavioral infractions for a minimum of 18 months before they apply. So Mm. good behavior, behavior. recommendation of the administration. So they go through their file and make sure that they are a good candidate. We make sure that we are representing 
as much of the population as possible. So our classes are reflective of the general population of the institution. So everybody has an equal chance. They fill out, I'm not done yet. This is pretty intense. They fill out an application, write answers to essay questions, have an in-person interview, and then the selection process is complete. Wow. How big is the class usually? Normally, the first cohort is about 14 to 16, keeping it small, getting the issues that might be prevalent within the institution, whether it's from a technical perspective or an administrative perspective, getting everything perfect. And from that point on, uh, the cohorts are about 20 to 24 The limitations are based on how many um, can be in a classroom in the facility based on coverage or having a correctional officer or whatever the security requirements are for that institution. In San Quentin, which was our proof of concept program, we started with 16 students in the first cohort, then 24 and that was in 2014. Today, we have a tech center. So we actually have multiple classrooms. We have three classrooms and we are growing. It's going to be about 20,000 square feet when it's complete. And people who come inside, our guests say, when I'm in your classrooms, I forget that I'm in prison because it seems like like a co-working space or a boot camp in Soma. The only difference is that all the students are wearing clothing that says CDCR prisoner on it. Right. What is The Last Mile Works? Can you share a little bit about that program? Oh, sure. The Last Mile Works is a public-private partnership between Cal PIA, which is California Prison Industry Authority, and The Last Mile. And because we are a public-private partnership, we can provide development services for outside companies. You've heard about prison wages and how people who are incarcerated are earning between 32 and 95 cents an hour in their jobs. Well, those are jobs specifically inside the prison system. Mm-hmm. In a joint venture business like PLM Works, the wage we pay our employees is set by the Employment Development Department. So this, the um, classification is an intern or apprentice level software developer at a company in Marin County. And the men who are participating in the Last Mile Works today earn $17.88 an hour. Wow, huge, uh, huge difference. Big Delta. On, on the prison, on these wages, they're divided into five buckets, 20% for room and board, 20% goes to restitution. And if they don't have restitution as part of their sentence, it goes into a general fund. 20% goes into their canteen account so that they can buy from the authorized catalog of items that are available to them, be it food, clothing, books, what have you. can go to support their family, and then 20% goes into a savings account. And if they don't have family to support, then 40% goes into their savings account. 
So the wow. day they walk out the gate, the day after they walk out the gate, they actually receive the proceeds in their savings account to start their new life. And if they didn't have that, they would have $200 in the state. Hmm. That's incredible. When I when I meet some of the youth in, in our underserved communities and talk to them and try to impress upon them the importance of education and the importance of, you know, doing the right thing and, and looking up to those who have come back to society and, and are, are successful. It, it's, it's really important. And they, they say, look, I never even thought about being a coder because no one in my hood was a coder. <laughs> but then one of our students, Jason Jones, who came back to society as a software engineer, wound up, and he's still to this day, volunteering to teach software engineering, computer coding, even basics, and then some at, um, at a school in West Oakland. That's amazing. Yeah. Your students, those that go through the program, is there a certification? What happens when they do finish the program? They all receive a certificate of completion, but I you probably know that there isn't really an accreditation process for any of the coding boot camps in in the country. It's not um, you know, it's not a university accredited course. So yes, they have a certificate of completion, but truthfully, you know, one of the reasons we started uh, teaching computer coding, which was very brave move because inside correctional facilities, we do not have internet access. So we had to create an environment um, that simulated a real coding environment without connectivity. So we, we decided that Computer coding was a great skill for them to have, A, because of the high demand. We all know that, you know, there's such a shortage of software engineers. So we figured there'd be high demand uh, for those skills when they come home um, and they could earn a living wage. But also it's, it's really the one area where they could be judged by the quality of their work and not the stigma of their past. Does Last Mile receive any type of job placement fee or uh, like commission from the partnerships that you make with this with those companies? So <clears throat> the Last Mile works, we actually are work for hire. So if anybody needs a new website, if they need to hire developers to augment their team, rather than going offshore, consider hiring the developers who are highly trained who are working inside San Quentin and that at TLM works. There is no commission for job placement. There is no prop, any profits that we would make on any of the jobs we do goes back into funding the education program. So it helps perpetuate not only the dev shop, but also the educational program. Wow. That's amazing. Do you keep track of those that went through a program, how many have found jobs and what that looks like? I'll say today that 100% of the students who completed the last mile program, whether it was entrepreneurship or coding, 100% are working, working full-time, many at multiple jobs, or going to school full-time. We have zero 
5% recidivism, which makes me very proud. Wow. Have you learned something working closely with these inmates? Is there something that having gone through this experience, you'd like to share with all of us here that have not had the chance or the opportunity to do so? One thing that comes up for me a lot is that I find it so inspiring to see how the human spirit can endure and rise above some of the most oppressive situations and still have a positive attitude and hope for the future. Hmm. Imagine there are graduates of our program who were incarcerated for 24 years, for 19 years, for 13 years, for decades, and they come back to society. I mean, isolated like that. Of course, they have TV and they have visitors and they can be involved in programs, but nonetheless, in the day-to-day life, they have been isolated for all this time. And they come back and they are the most positive employees. They are the most giving and positive people because they are so grateful to be free and to have a chance at a successful life. Because they've served their time, they've done their work. Some people say that the graduates of our program who come home are some of the most evolved people they know because Hmm. they've spent their time wisely. They've done the work on themselves while they have the time to do it. The other thing that really inspires me is how much they want to give back to the world. What else do you believe needs to be done in order to continue reducing the rate of individuals that find themselves back in prison? Well, the most important thing we can do right now is to help them reintegrate back into society by educating those who are in the companies and in the culture, educating them about why it's important to have an open mind and open heart and to show them by example, those who have served their time and done the work shouldn't be judged by the stigma of their past. They deserve to have a chance at life. In many ways, it's not their second chance. It's their first chance. Because if you hear the circumstances under which they grew up, you realize that the odds were against them from the get-go. And I'm going to read a, a text that I received on Mother's Day. Let me see if I can find it real quick. It says, hey, Bev, hope all is well with you and your family. Just wanted to say that that your natural maternal instincts have impacted not only me, but anyone that ever had the privilege to meet you. On a personal level, I've had a lot of foster moms and or friends moms that have always tried to fill the vacancy that my own mother left a long time ago. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And it it was always temporary. However, ever since Chris and you came into my life, I feel like that void has been filled. And for the first time in my life, I feel free to move on from all my childhood trauma memories and empowered to start my life as an adult. 
I have a lot of love and respect for you all both and just want to thank you. But more importantly, thank you for not only investing in my potential, but believing in me, even when I couldn't imagine the impossible. I will make you proud. I promise that. Happy Mother's Day. Wow. That is, uh, that's beautiful. How does that make you feel? I'm tearing up here just listening to it. <laughs> well, it's the first time I read it without getting highly emotional. Um, so thank you for that. But um, it makes me feel so proud, A, of the person who wrote it. And it just makes it all worthwhile and just keeps me going and want to do more and more because that's one person. Today we have 250 students in our classrooms. That's amazing. For everyone that's listening and they want to help and they want to support, what can they do and where can they find you? First of all, have an open heart. And when you meet someone who may have been formerly incarcerated, don't judge them by their past. Look at them as a human being and who they are today because they've probably done a lot of work. Uh, thelastmile.org is our site for our educational programs. There's a lot of information about what we've done, our accomplishments, facts, how you can help. Come, become a volunteer. Come inside. Come into our classrooms like so many of the organizations like SEP in Indiana Software engineering professionals, they just joined um, as a mentor and volunteer group and also with a generous donation. And they ran a soft skills training, did some uh, mock interviews, and just have been really uh, just a tremendous value to those in Indiana. Go to the tlmworks.org if we can help you build a new website or refresh one that you have today or help you as an adjunct to your development team or a new mobile app or web app. We can do that inside San Quentin. Not only are you going to get a quality product, but you're going to help build someone's future. Well, that's this week's episode of Getting There. Thank you all for listening to the Getting There podcast. Very much appreciated. Be sure to visit gettingtherepodcast.com to learn about more leaders solving the world's most pressing problems through our videos, games, blogs, and more. If you are or have a friend who's a social impact leader using scalable technology to find sustainable solutions for world-pressing problems, please reach out to my team and I at guest at gettingtherepodcast.com. That is guest at gettingtherepodcast.com. Catch a new episode every Tuesday. If you enjoyed the show and want to spread love back to my team and I, please make sure to subscribe and rate us. Have a wonderful day. And as my grandfather would say, adelante y arriba. <laughs>